Hey everybody, this is Fran Frischella and welcome to this week's World of Basketball podcast. You know it, we're the podcast that shrinks the basketball globe for you and brings you interesting guests from every walk of basketball life, uh, six different continents, NBA, college basketball, the EuroLeague, FIBA, you name it. We've had them all on and we're going to continue to bring you great guests. And we've been heading towards 100 podcasts since we started in the spring of 2020. And I'm not sure we've had a more enjoyable interview than the one we're going to bring you today. Mirren Fader is a terrific basketball writer. I remember her work uh, from Bleacher Report. She did an amazing uh, profile of LaMelo uh, Ball. Uh, she did something on Pat Beverly. She writes for The Ringer, but we're bringing you to her, her bringing her interview to, to today because last August she wrote a be- New York Times bestseller called Giannis, The Improbable Rise of an NBA MVP. Uh, it was out last August. It did gangbusters. It's now out in paperback. And Disney has a movie coming out in late June called Rise, which is basically the same story. She'll get into how there's no connection between her great book and the Disney movie. She'll talk about the incredible story of Giannis and how he basically came out of nowhere. Um, If you don't know his story, it's remarkable. That's all I can tell you. We'll get into LaMelo. We'll get into Pat Beverly towards the end. But I can't think of a more enjoyable conversation I've had on World of Basketball than with Mirren Fader. You're going to see why in a few minutes. And uh, so that's I look forward to bringing that to you. In the meantime, if you like what we're doing, make sure you subscribe uh, to uh, all the places you get um, your podcast. If this is the first time you're hearing us, trust me, we've done about 90 shows now. They're unbelievable, not because of me, but because we've had incredible guests And if you want to be educated about international basketball, just download uh, the app and give us a review and rate it. And uh, I love reading some of the reviews. You warm my heart because so many people on the reviews and also social media have commented on how much they enjoy what we're doing week in and week out. Um, Just some news and notes. Uh, The NBA, all all NBA teams came out. Mr. Chris Tyler, my cohort. And no surprise, the top three vote-getters, all born outside the United States. I say no surprise, Chris, because five years ago, it would have been a huge surprise. But the way the NBA has evolved, the way the globe has shrunk, when you talk about Giannis, when you talk about Jokic, Luka Doncic, Joel Embiid, I mean, that's four of the top seven or eight players in 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 the basketball world right now. And we've we brought people this content from the very beginning and educated people on why the, why the globe has shrunk. Warms my heart to see the top three vote getters born outside the United States. Yeah, you and I have spoken about this before. It's exciting to see that not only are we growing the amount of international players that are playing in the NBA, we're also seeing a rise in the stars that are coming from overseas, right? We've had all these role players. We've had role players in the NBA for years from, um, from, from overseas, right, from international countries, from Europe, from Africa, from Australia. But being able to see these guys come over and really succeed, win MVPs, single-handedly take their teams and win NBA championships, 
And that is really, really exciting stuff. And it's only really happened, like you said, in the past five years or so. The game is growing globally. It is becoming much more of a, a world game than it was even five, 10 years ago, even though we have seen from all of these interviews that we do on this show, there are so many countries across Europe and Australia and in Africa that love basketball. But now I think it's, it's hitting the point where they're starting to produce players as much talent as American. Hopefully in the next five, 10 years from now, we'll see these countries really start challenging the U.S. on uh, a more you know, global level at the, at the Olympics, at the world champs, that sort of stuff, because the States has been so dominant for so long. I think we all want to see the rest of the countries catch up to the U.S., and I think that's happening. Well, it, has, it is happening. Listen, I, nobody loves American basketball more than me, especially being part of USA Basketball now with the 3X3 program. But uh, I also know that it's healthy. It's, the glo- it's a global game. It's not... It's not football or soccer, but it's certainly catching on. And, uh, you know, Pascal Siakam, third team All-NBA, Joel Embiid, second All-NBA, and, of course, Giannis Luka and Jokic, first team All-NBA. So, listen, United States, we have, we have the most great players in the world, um, but it's fun to see. And um, unless you're just a, you know, you're just a guy that doesn't like to see the world shrinking basketball-wise – uh, I think it's great for the game. And so with that, let's talk about Giannis. And there's nobody better to talk about Giannis uh, than Mirren Fader. And if you haven't read Giannis, The Improbable Rise of an NBA MVP, it's out in paperback now. And you're going to learn a lot about this incredible young man. NBA MVP, NBA champion. Now we bring you Mirren Fader. Marin, it is such a pleasure to be to have you on our World of Basketball podcast today, where we pretty much shrink the basketball globe. And you sort of did this with your incredible book, Giannis, The Improbable Rise of an NBA MVP. So welcome. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Uh, we're going to get into some incredible Giannis stuff. But first, I gotta, I've got to ask you, um, and you have done such great work. If you're a basketball fan listening to this, uh, Mirren started, I believe, the Orange County Register among the early start. And then Bleacher Report, where I first read your incredible uh, journey uh, to Lithuania uh, to cover the Ball family. I'll get into that <laughs> and, and, and ask you in retrospect uh, what you're seeing, because your good friend, Jeff Perlman, I heard him say on a podcast that he didn't think LaMelo would end up making it. Uh, of course, yes. none of us, we were all skeptical, but we'll get into that. But mainly... You are a lifelong hoops fan. You played some college basketball mm-hmm. and uh, you have taken this love of writing and this love of basketball. And you are a rock star now based on what you're doing at the ringer. Cause you're, cause your pieces are incredible. So tell me, I got to first ask you, what's the difference between long form, which you're great at and writing a book and the challenge that writing this book on Giannis presented to you? Well, man, first off, thank you so much for saying all that. Um, You know, when I did the book, I realized 
with the difference with long form in a book, it's like same language, different dialect. So with long form, when you finish a piece, you want the reader to go, huh, I have a sense of what this person is like. Like I have a real sense. And when I watch him on TV, I know this one moment that happened to him when he was nine years old. I know his innermost feelings over here. I get a sense of not just like how great of an athlete he is, but all the intangibles that drove him. When you have a book, It's like interrogating each of those things times a million. So one sentence in a long form is like four pages in a book. And, you know, I think the the weirdest and also most cool part is that you're the DJ. So you get to decide how much you want to go into it or not. And I think with Giannis, the challenge was we knew nothing about his childhood other than sold trinkets on the street. So the challenge was, how do you not make the book 300 pages on childhood alone. You got to get to the NBA at least midway through. The book. Exactly. But the childhood is so rich. So it was, you know, it was a balance with that. You know, uh, I think if I'm not mistaken, you did a piece on Giannis and his family prior to the book. And I'm wondering when you were writing it, were you as surprised as the people that read your book about this guy's incredible early life? And uh, I think you once said it's like miraculous what happened to him and his career and his family. At what point when you were writing that first story about Giannis and his family, did you say, I'm not going to be able to get to anywhere close to what I want to discover about this guy? You know, it's so funny. As I was, you know, driving back in my rental car, I was just kind of like, oh, my God. I just kept saying to myself, oh, my God, I I don't even know how I'm going to encapsulate this. Because, first of all, I didn't even know Giannis was going to be there. It just was pure luck. He happened to be in the house spent the whole day with the family, had no idea the mom was going to be there. It was all serendipitous. And the more I observed, the more I was learning about Giannis, I came there to learn about his brother. And so I just thought, wow, this has been so unexplored. He hadn't even won his first MVP. I think the thing that I realized when I saw how intensely he was looking at his younger brother and how much he wanted it for him And seeing the kind of posh environment that his younger brother grew up in, that's when I sort of grasped how different it was for Giannis and how little we knew about that. Right. I mean, his family story is really the story of your book and and more so maybe even than how great a player he's become because, uh, and we'll get into his early beginnings, but you, you know, the thing that's amazing about the book, especially as you started to write it back in 20 was, you know, immigration was a, big political issue for, and it still is like um, Giannis's story is so heartwarming because of the fact that he, he wouldn't come to America likely without his family and go, go. I'm so sorry. (laughs) I want to hear you talk. I'm, I don't want to, I don't want to over talk. I just got excited. You know, this is my favorite thing. No, it's a huge part. And the reason why the book focused so heavily on it is because it was sort of absent from his story. It was this big, it felt to me, this big elephant in the room that was not being discussed because it's so inspiring, because it's so heartwarming, because we learn these little drips of the story where this nice human being helped them and this nice human being, it was unfathomable to people that actually maybe people were not so kind to them as well. And, you know, I think the average person might not know that if you're born in Greece, and you are the child of immigrants, it doesn't mean you get citizenship. They don't have birthright citizenship. So for me, when you write a book, you want to write it so that 
the basketball nerd can enjoy it, but also a person that knows nothing about basketball, but cares about the global significance of his story would get into it. And yeah. immigration was kind of a way to merge both of those worlds. Yeah, you, you did a great job with that. I, I, I Now, here's what I, you know, it's crazy. You started, I believe you started the book right around the time of the pandemic. Yes, literally the world shut down and right when I got my book deal. <laughs> when you got your book deal, because I and I, I think it was I think I was listening to Jeff, you and Jeff Perlman talk about getting a literary. Liter- I don't think you're going to have a problem with a literary agent anymore, by the way. <laughs> and, you know, and I'm sure you've got a great one now. Um, and I can't wait to see what you got on the on the horizon as far as uh, uh, the books go. But um, you basically had to do so much of your. Re- did you do a lot of research on Zoom like we all did? I did everything over Zoom and mainly WhatsApp, actually, because yeah. it was a lot of, you know, international calls. You save and, a lot of money on WhatsApp if you. Oh, my God. Me and WhatsApp. I, I, I moved it to like my top apps. You know, I had never used it before. And now all of a sudden I was like only communicating on WhatsApp. So essentially I was planning to go to Greece. And when the pandemic happened, I was like, oh, it's going to be fine. I'll go to Greece in the summer. Like this shouldn't last till the summer. And then I had to cancel my trip. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's like the publisher was like, well, Giannis is making a huge decision about whether he's going to stay in Milwaukee or not. So your deadline can't change. So you got to find a way to make it work. So I had to get really creative. Like I would find people that would show me Sepolia and literally send me videos and pictures because you want the reader to feel like they're there. And this is like the most absurd situation. You as the writer are not there. So it was, you know, I always try to be so meticulous about detail, but this I had to really push and ask question after question after question to make sure I could like really paint that picture accurately. The one thing I learned from you, because you didn't like when you did the piece on Lamello, you thought you were going to have more access than you did. And you just kind of worked around it. Right. And, and you kind of probably had to do that. And I, I know you would have loved to have walked those streets of that neighborhood in Athens and you couldn't do it. And yet you still were able to paint this picture. So I, I got I, I kept thinking about this this morning when I was on my walk because of the pandemic and travel. Have you yet gotten to where he grew up? No. And crazy. I know it's so upsetting. And we had a um, there's a Greek translation and I couldn't even go to Greece for the launch of it because they had rules about letting Americans in. And I mean, it's so strange, but I'm glad you brought up the Lithuania thing, because I actually thought of that as I was writing the Giannis book. I was like, look, you've been in situations where you've had everything against you. I didn't even have a translator in Lithuania and I had to come back with something. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, it's like thinking on your feet. I found the one guy that spoke English and then I befriended him. And part of that was because I was dribbling on the sideline to show him that I was a real hooper and not like some rando person. I was like, you can trust me. Like I know basketball. And then we became friends and then he helped me. So it's, it was like that with Giannis. It was like, okay, I found the one guy that coached him at age 14 who was on his block. Oh, I remember this one guy lived next door. He's friends with this guy. I know that guy. I'll contact you over there. It was a lot of that type of thing because you can't Google Giannis's childhood or Giannis's childhood best friends. Like this information simply doesn't exist. So I had to embrace the challenge, I guess you would say. Yeah, no, you did it. You did a wonderful job because it kept dawning on me that you would have been there in a heartbeat if if not for what happened to our world for 18 months to two years, which is even more amazing. He is and I know a little bit about him going back to his, you know, 2013 when I 
probably 2012, I discovered him because one of my closest friends, former players, was a scout for the Pacers. And like the people that you pointed out in, in the book, he was trying to keep Giannis under wraps a little bit as well, as were some other teams. But let's talk about the family and immigration. And when I first saw him play, it was just weeks after he got a citizenship, because I think by this time the government knew he was going to be such a special player. But talk about the early days of the family, the immigration, the fact that dad would sometimes go for a day or two without without food. And that there was a joy. I think the thing that I, I don't mean to be so long-winded, but joy is in this family, regardless of their circumstances. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm so glad you brought that up because I was very conscious and afraid of overemphasizing the trauma because I think people tend to do that in our industry, you know, trauma porn. And I wanted to show that like for every difficult moment, here's laughter because that was the reality of their situation. They were dirt poor. Sometimes Giannis wouldn't eat his first meal till 11 p.m., but he also was happy. Like both things are true because you don't know any different. That's just your reality. And so he had a lot of joy amidst this pain and some details that I found just so interesting. I tracked down the landlord of one of, you know, the places that they were staying and through the kindness of those people to give them more time. I didn't want to highlight the kindness of the people. I wanted to highlight the resilience of the family and the boys and how the boys would charm these people and meet these people. And you could just see they just needed an opportunity. They just needed a little bit of help, but they really did have to switch pairs of shoes. Sometimes they would only have one pair of clean socks and Veronica, the mom would have to stay up after a long day of selling in these illegal markets to wash that socks. So again, like everyone talks about work ethic, work ethic with Giannis, but it's like, how can you not when you see your mom do that? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that that has not changed in that family. I mean, they lost dad. But like what I still love about Giannis is there's an innocence there that really takes him back to those days that they that they, you know, were in they were in their childhood. Yeah. And I think some people are surprised to learn that even when your financial situation changes, you become a millionaire, that you (laughs) still hold on to those feelings. But it's so common. You don't just lose the fear of losing money or the fear of something bad happening. You don't, that sticks with you no matter how much your life changes. And I think it's a positive for him because it drives him. When it becomes, when he becomes a millionaire, tell the story about him taking the PlayStation back. (laughs) Okay. So (laughs) he felt tremendous guilt because he was making this money. And at this point, his parents and his family could not come over to the U S people don't realize this was an enormous red tape situation that was rumored to go all the way up to the secretary of state to get the proper visas. They were denied almost three times, I think, or two times. If you got denied a third time, you couldn't come, you couldn't try again. So he wanted this PlayStation so bad because as I foreshadow in the book, he always sort of longed after things, but he just always understood you couldn't get them. And there was an unspoken silence that that's frivolous. We don't need that. He wants Christmas Carol to save up enough money for a TV. That's an anecdote in the book. But PlayStation, when he finally sees it in the store, he's got money in his pocket, literal money, because Giannis insisted he needed the cash and not direct deposit. Um He was like, I need this. And it was so impulsive and he felt so guilty. He returned it the next day. And I just think, wow, you know, um, 
again, just because your circumstances change don't mean your mentality and that scarcity mindset that has followed you your whole life is going to you know, disappear. Exactly. The name of the book, Giannis, The Improbable Rise of an NBA MVP. Our guest is Mirren Fader. She is a great basketball writer now with The Ringer. Um, he, he finds, you know, he doesn't love basketball early on, but he's got the genes are good. Let's face it. The genes are pretty good. You know, the family, it's a family of guys that end up being pretty good basketball players, but just talk about the the rise, if you will, in the neighborhood and the streets and the, uh, the second division team. And then we'll get into the draft and the NBA. So it is true that a random man named Spiros discovered him, uh, just not even anything crazy, just running, playing tag like normal kids. And Giannis was like super athletic because he played soccer. His dad played soccer, just really good hand-eye coordination, but he didn't even like basketball. He was not good at basketball and he couldn't even really devote his time to it because he was always missing practices because he had to go sell with his family. So you have about a two, three year period where he's like, all right at basketball, but he doesn't, he's not really feeling it. And he doesn't feel he can commit the time that his coaches are asking of him. He finally realizes that he has potential. He has a really good coach named Takasivas who says, if you work at this, you know, you can go somewhere. And this other man um, whose name is slipping me uh, at the cafe gave him food and he's starting to come along. And there's one problem. He can't join the top teams because he's, he's not a citizen. So even though he's getting better at basketball, his options are super limited. He doesn't really even know much about the NBA. He just watches clips on YouTube of players and he's sort of fascinated, but the road is super murky because Olympiacos and Panathinaikos, the top two teams aren't checking for him. And so you go through this colossal red tape situation where scouts are seeing him and great Greek players are not getting that same attention because they don't have the athleticism that Giannis has. So all these American coaches flock to this little dinky gym to go find this player in this second division team against guys that are smoking outside uh, beer bellies, you know, not great basketball. And, you know, people see that he has potential. He's good, but nobody was like, wow, this is the next great thing. So it's kind of miraculous the rise because he wasn't even on the top tier teams in the country and was only given citizenship because the Greek government was finally like, Oh, I think you have a future in basketball. This could be good for us. I'll make you citizens, you know, because keep in mind, they didn't make his family citizens at the same time. Exactly. You know um, this now, this is 2013. I, I had heard about him in 2012, the way, some of those scouts started to go over there. He might've been 17 or 18 at the time. This was maybe a couple of years into his growth, right? Cause he started playing maybe right. at 16 or 17. We're at the Euro camp in Treviso, Italy. And the word spreads when we get to the camp, it's a three or four day camp. Every NBA team's there. Giannis has gotten a citizenship. Greece is going to play in a friendly tournament with, I believe it was Russia, Turkey, and Italy. And at night, all 30 team scouts went to this little beach town to watch Giannis. And we went three straight nights. Of course, I was working the camp as an ESPN guy, uh, but coaching at the camp. And we all watched him. And Mirren, I know you've kind of chronicled his rise. He was about six foot eight, mm-hmm. maybe on his way to six, nine, but probably 180 pounds. And nobody, nobody. I remember seeing him thinking he'd be a really good college prospect, like a mm-hmm. McDonald's All-American prospect. But the thing that stood out to me was how fundamentally sound he was. 
but not realizing this guy would ever grow to be whatever it is now, 6'11". So talk about the citizenship part, because we would have never seen him if it were not for the country giving him his citizenship, probably figuring out that he's going to be a really good basketball player. It's so true. And when what also made it difficult is that while he's trying to gain citizenship, you have a lot of NBA scouts in America with only this grainy footage to work through. So while you guys were there in Treviso, there was a whole lot of people on their computers in America being like, what is this? Like, I can't even tell how tall Giannis is. <laughs> like you just the, the footage was so terrible that you just could not even gauge like how he's going to, you know, who can you compare him to? Right. Like right. draft people. Who's yeah. who can he emulate? Who can he be? And again, we didn't know he was going to grow a couple inches as well. So that was another element. But what really it was like a triangle of um, people involved. So he was actually going to play for Zaragoza in Spain. And Let's that coach was, was going to ask you about that because he could have gone to Spain. He could have if he didn't blow up. Yeah. So, yeah. so I interviewed the Spanish coach and um, he was one of my favorite interviews because it's so bittersweet for him. He was so happy to see Giannis get his citizenship and get drafted, but he, he literally almost had one of the greatest players of all time on his roster without, you know, and I, I think that's, what's interesting is that he was concerned and kept telling the agents, like, how are we going to get citizenship? Are we going to have to lobby to the Spanish government and embassy? Then you had some rumbles about what about he could play for the Nigerian national team. And that's when, um, through my reporting, I saw the Greek government moved along. I think the key element here is time. It wasn't like the Greek government was like, oh, yeah, of course, we're going to give you citizenship. They dragged their feet. I mean, it really was to the end. Like when you were at Treviso, there was so much going on behind the scenes of red tape. And I mean, it was kind of a mess. Yeah. The funny thing about Treviso is when you go to a camp like that, not all the gen general managers go like it's mainly international scouts and, and on a, in a given year, maybe eight of the 30 general managers. So now you're a scout and you go back and tell your general manager, Hey, we saw, we finally saw Giannis and there's still that skepticism about taking a pick so high because we were looking at a piece of what I always call a piece of NBA silly putty. Uh, Nobody really knew like how you could mold this guy. And of course, John Hammond and the Bucks, you know, end up drafting him. I got to ask you this. This is kind of a little segue, kind of like a end of the, end of the first quarter halftime. <laughs> does, does the Disney movie, the date, is there any relationship between them calling this movie Rise and your book? And did you have any input into their story? No, you know, they never reached out. So wow. unclear, but uh, <laughs> I have <laughs> my contracts up, so I can't say anything. Negative. <laughs> and I can't say anything either, okay. but okay. Uh, I, I think it's going to be wonderful. I can't tell you how many uh, elementary school teachers and high school teachers have reached out to me and said, my kids are reading your book. My kids love Giannis. And so when I saw that they were doing Disney, I was like, you know what? Perfect audience. Like, I'm so glad yeah. kids have him to look up to. Yeah. Well, then I'm going to say it again. Giannis, the improbable rise of an NBA MVP, already a bestseller. The paperback is now out as yes. we record this. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's in the late spring. So the paperback is out and uh, it's an amazing, amazing, amazing story written by someone who does amazing work. So um, let me ask you this. Let's talk some basketball. Um, combine his humility with his growing as a player. And I'll, I'll ask you about Jason Kidd. 
because with Jason's input, impact and input, it's kind of relevant right now with Giannis already being a two-time MVP and NBA champion, getting coached by an NBA champion and sometimes having that, you know, tension. But talk about the combination of his great humility, but also uh, this quiet toughness that I don't think people really realize he's needed to have just to survive from the streets of Athens to being one of the great players in the world. Absolutely. I mean, quiet toughness is a really good way to put it. You know, even as a rookie, he would just get smacked around like he would literally they would post him up and he'd just be a toothpick and fall over. But you know what? He got right back up and he was not upset and he didn't pout and he would run so freaking fast down the court and do a chase down block. That's what makes Giannis special. So even though he wasn't there physically, there was always this like, don't fight, you know, don't quit in him. And he was always going to fight. And you got to have that when you your team wins 15 games your first year, you know, so he's getting better because he has this mentality of like, well, I'm not going to back down. I don't have the muscles, but I will not back down. So what changed was religious time in the weight room, finally having that growth spurt and the, the body to bang. And then he's no longer afraid. Like one of my favorite parts of reporting was him practicing his angry face in the mirror. (laughs) (laughs) Because every time we watch Bucks games, he does the mean mug or now he's doing a shimmy. I'm like, wow, okay, the shimmy. (laughs) Like we have come a long way, you know? So I just, I love that he was like practicing his scowl around this time. And what he was really gaining, I will say more than anything around like the 2014, 2015, 16 era was confidence. Yeah. And toughness now because- he, he had a coach in Jason Kidd who yes. would play mind games with him. Mm-hmm. Um, probably the only guy in the organization at the time that was every bit, if not a better player than Giannis has turned out to be. Um, talk about the tension of a superstar coaching somebody who's not a superstar, but has the potential to be. And whether you think in the long term, it was a positive experience. And I don't want you to kill Jason because he's obviously going on <laughs> great stuff. But just that tension between because superstars sometimes have a hard time coaching. We always say about superstars, they don't always make great coaches because their players can't do what they did. Yes. OK, but, so. Yeah. So go ahead. Yeah, there was an element of that. And I think for me, it was disappointing that the excerpt of Jason's worst part in the book came out, like right when the book came out. And that was all anyone talked about versus there was overwhelming majority positive about Jason in the book that just didn't get traction. But I note in the book how critical Jason was to Giannis's development. First of all, he trusted him with the ball. He said, I believe when you go downhill, nobody can stop you. And I think that that was very smart because as you we saw in, you know, the time after Jason, they were trying to like make him a stand-up shooter, a three-point, like just all these things that weren't necessarily him. And I think Jason correctly identified that like he could be a hybrid. He could be a modern day big man that just goes to the basket. Don't settle for jump shots. So I think that was truly positive. And I think that Jason gave him a lot of confidence because Giannis trusted him. And the, the best part about their relationship is that Giannis was receptive because he wasn't a superstar. He was on the brink of being one and Jason believed he could be one, but he wasn't there yet. And so I think he really became one during that time. Now, the way that Jason pushed him to talk more, I think is critical. Everyone knows that Giannis is this really like nice guy, humble guy, but 
it really was a problem for him early on in his career to vocalize. Like he wanted to lead by example in his work ethic. But Jason was like, if I'm molding you into a point guard, point guard has to be heard at all times. Like I need you to be vocal. I need you to stand up. And that was really hard. Giannis is the guy in class who's like, don't call on me. Don't call on me. I don't want to talk. And um, so I just think he brought Giannis out of his shell. And so I do see positives there. The way Jason treated other players on the Bucks, which I describe in the book, was, you know, really manipulative and, and not great. But I think two things can exist at the same time and um, definitely wanted to make sure that Jason's complexity was tackled with sensitivity, but also, um, I don't know, Grace, uh, yeah. Giannis was really upset when he left. That was hard. Right. Yeah, and it's ironic now that he's now coaching one of the other three or four best players in the world in, right. in Luka. And I've heard you say that that might, that might be an interesting book someday, right? I Come on. need that. Can we just, can we just manifest Duffy. the basketball I'll, gods? Because I need that story, that book. I'll put, I'll put the word in with Bill Duffy, who I tried <laughs> to get. I tried to get Luca. Yeah, I tried to get Luca to um, – I mean, I'm also – I'm embarrassed to say this. I'm in the new Alan, Adam Sandler movie coming out. Oh Cool. I'll be in LA June 1st for the premiere. Don't ask me why I got invited, but I am in the movie. But we, we originally, I tried, you know, I was kind of a conduit to find the right guy to be the, the protagonist, the, the guy that uh, Stanley, you know, about? do you know about hustle and the, the background? Of yeah. The story? yeah. Okay, so Stanley Silverman gets fired by the Sixers and now he's down and out on his luck and he discovers the next great thing. Kind of like Giannis and Luca. And um, but but Luca didn't want to play the part. So the uh, Adam and his people ended up getting uh, uh, Juancho Hernan Gomez, who so great. already looks like a movie star. And and, it, and I think it'll be great. But uh, but I brought up Luca because here's what I want to know from. I don't know if you've reported on this or written anything about the Mavericks since since Giannis left. Do you sense that Jay Kidd has evolved as a coach because of his experience in Milwaukee or? Can you tell? Though I haven't reported on it, just from all the reporting that I've done on Jason and the what I'm observing from the Mavs is the tough-minded defense, all of those things, those are like classic Jason, classic. And um, he gets, when he does have the trust of the guys and when they're with him, especially with veteran players, they're they're riding for him. Like that, that makes sense to me. I think, um, I think it's interesting because as we just talked about, Giannis was not a star when Jason first got him. Luca was a star. And I think Luca would be successful no matter who was coaching. But obviously, Jason has done a tremendous job and deserves that credit. Um, I think he's always evolving because he's a point guard and that's the way they think, especially the, the kind of maniacal, the always on that I know he is. Um so, yeah, I'm sure he has evolved. I think Lakers people, it's interesting to hear them talk. Oh, we should have kept Jason Kidd. We should have did this. We should have that. And, you know, I, I think it, he would have been an interesting candidate regardless, you know. Yeah, you you are. I got. I must tell people you are a devoted Laker fan from your yeah. sort of, right? Yes, yes, <laughs> I am. And uh, it's been rough, but. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I've been a lifelong Knicks fan. I know how you All feel. Right. Yeah, you, you, at least you have championships that go back like uh, recently, you know, including in the bubble. So I, I have more. I've suffered more pain than you. That's have, right. I'm going to I'm going to be fine now. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I could talk. I could literally 
my, my, my producer, Chris Tyler, is smiling in his Zoom call because I could literally ask you 10 million more questions, but I don't <laughs> want to keep you all day. Um, as it relates to Giannis and just because you're so involved in the league and basketball, you're doing some amazing stuff with these draft prospects. Have you noticed the way international players have changed the NBA? Like you're kind of, I got to tell you, I go back, you know, I'm 63. So I have a lot of basketball in my brain uh, historically too. Uh, You're a newbie to me, you know, I mean, comparatively, but I'm I'm curious because of how much I love international basketball. Have you seen a change Jokic and, and Giannis and, and Doncic and the others, Joel Embiid have made in the NBA? Huge change. First of all, just on the respect level, I think there was just such an arrogance from America. And, you know, obviously Dirk um, created, you know, really started this legacy. And uh, even before that, Hakeem Olajuwon, you know, like there there have been guys, but this new generation has popularized it in ways, I will say, that others may not have, you know, like Dirk obviously did. But I think for the first time, we're asking questions, can they be the face of the league? And this year, I felt like the question went a little bit deeper is, no, they are the face of the league. They are. They literally are. And whether people are ready for that or not doesn't matter because they are. Um, What I think is personally interesting is what the NBA is doing as far as developing talent overseas. Like I did this article on um, the NBA's efforts to find the next superstar in India and learning about that and how much resources they're pouring into India alone, let alone their academy in Australia. Africa has so many academies now. And so I think the change is that there is a hunger to find the next Giannis. There is a hunger to find the next Embiid. And it's, easier than ever to be in those situations. Like I think finding Giannis is miraculous, but I think the next Giannis has it so much easier. And I think that's the difference. Oh, I I can't agree with you more. You know, we call this podcast world of basketball because we we shrink the globe literally. And in my time, it's why I love international hoop so much. I've often said this, Mirren, um, our great coaches, including UB Brown, who's still going strong, they went to Europe in the 60s and 70s and did these clinics around Europe and around the world, um, certainly more so Europe than Africa and South America and, and Asia. But now it's a global game, as we know. And the coaches and players that soaked in all this knowledge, they're kind of teaching the game back to us now. Right. Right. It's so much fun. You know, it's, it's so much fun. When I went to Lithuania, you know, <laughs> it, it really opened my eyes to everything. It was just like. Wow. Like it really just occurred to me, like there's so obviously I knew this, but it's different when you see it. And I, I'm sure you had similar epiphanies when you were first starting out, but it was like, wow, there's so many around. There's so many people around the world that love the same game that I do. And that is just the coolest thing ever, you know? And like when they, there's like people that reach out to me from like just the most random pockets of the earth that are like, Giannis is my favorite player. And I'm like, how does that happen? Like, I just think it's so, it's so interesting. And I am glad that people like Giannis, people like MB, their stories are getting out more because it's only going to become, you know, more internationally focused as we head into the future. And I think it brings people together. You know, we we sometimes, you know, we we get, I'm very conscious when I travel overseas uh, to not ever be the ugly American and to try to, try to learn a few, you know, 
Uh, if I, I'm Italian, I'm, I'm embarrassed to tell you that I don't speak any Italian except prego and grazie. <laughs> That's all you need. No, it's all kidding. you need. You cannot, kind of all you need in some of these countries is just show people that you're willing to learn their culture. Right. And that reminds me, we cannot end this podcast. And I hope I can keep you for a few more minutes. Because, oh, please. Yeah. All right. Because the book is Giannis, The Improbable Rise of an NBA MVP. But I have to ask you about two particular people. Um, but you, you, you kind of earned your stripes. When Bleacher Report said to you, hey, you're going to Lithuania <laughs> and there's this crazy dad, LeVar Ball, who's taken his son, LaMelo. We knew about Lonzo, but LaMelo's not going to college. He's going to go play professionally in Lithuania. And you had to go over there. And you know what? You I know you discovered this pretty quickly, that Christianity is the top religion in Lithuania, but close second is basketball. Oh my God. And I didn't know that to be honest with you. I really didn't because I I think also because where he was sent to was so far removed from like where basketball is amazing. Like Vilnius, like all those places, like it's the most remote place. And it's so crazy to me to see how many people are on the Lamello bandwagon now, because when I went the vibe, as you remember, was like, this kid is so arrogant this dad is crazy. Oh my God. Look at LaMelo pulling from half court. He's never going to fit in the NBA offense. He's selfish. I mean, it really, my mentor, Jeff Roman, like thought it was crazy that they sent me like genuinely thought it was nuts. And personally, I could have never predicted that LaMelo would be as amazing as he is. But what I will say does not surprise me at all is because he was that confident then that always struck me about him. When people told me he was immature, I, I was very surprised by that because I saw somebody that was really comfortable in his own skin, not arrogant, but just very sure of himself and what he wanted to do. Looking back now, I'm like, wow. Yeah. That bulletproof confidence. That makes sense why you were able to perform in the NBA under so much pressure. You know, I don't know. I don't know if you got to, did you get to ever, I know you couldn't talk to him when you did your piece on him, by the way, if you're listening, Google the piece, it's an amazing piece on what's now become one of the better young players in the league. And his brother's a pretty good player too. Lonzo's turn. You know, I always say about Lonzo, LeVar Ball, and I've got two boys who both play college basketball. They're both coaches now. But the way LeVar Ball took care of his boys and his mm-hmm. wife, I don't never met the man, but his two sons, two of his sons were top five picks. And the one thing that struck me, um, Mira, and I wonder if you can relate to this. The night that I interviewed him on draft night two years ago, we had him on a Zoom, and I just fell in love with his personality. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I might've got this kid wrong. Did you, was there that epiphany for you as you delve into him? There was because in, so that Lithuania piece was 2018, 2019, when he went to Australia, I went to Australia to write. Yeah. Yeah. I went to write a second feature. And this time I spent two weeks with him literally every day. It was the total opposite experience. It was so bizarre. I was like, so now we're inseparable. Like it was, it was totally different than the first time. Yeah. I just, he's so charming. He's hilarious. We could have gone anywhere. And he was like, we need to go to McDonald's together because Mirren, the Oreo McFlurries are everything. They give you double Oreos. And I was like, oh my God, like I feel old. Like I'm young, but I was like, you are legit 10 years younger than me. And it shows, you know, and just like dunking his pancakes and like 
just bottles of syrup. Like I just, he's so personable. He would go to this same restaurant every day and he would say hello to all the cooks in the kitchen. What's up my boy? Like, Hey. And I was like, how do you, how do you know these people by name? He's like, I just come here every day and I got to know them. And it's that magnetic kind personality that I really was like, wow, everyone is very wrong about him. But I think what made that Australia piece one of the ones that meant the most to me was I also saw firsthand this really vulnerable side where he said to me, like, people treat me like I'm a dollar sign. And that's that's the interiority that I was looking for in Lithuania about what it's like to sort of be thrust into these crazy situations and somehow you perform. But it leaves a scar. And I think as funny and lighthearted and awesome as he is personality wise, like there was so much going on internally that I just. I more so had respect for him because I just don't know if I would have been able to carry all of that if I was in his shoes. Yeah. And I read your piece now that I realized that it, you wrote that piece because you talked about the loneliness. It's a small town Yeah, where he was. And he, I think it was his music and just being able to eat, you know, at McDonald's and, and yeah. right. That was it. Right. The, that was literally it. There was yeah. a, I mean, he was afraid of the ocean. That was the other thing. He was afraid to go in the ocean. He, yeah. <laughs> he thought yeah. they would like swallow him up or something. And, you know, that's when I was like, he's just a kid. Like he's a kid, but he's a man. And the tension of Lamelo's life is always being a boy who's forced to be a man. And so it's so fascinating to me. Like the other day I was uh, watching TV with my mom and his commercial came up. I think it was for AT&T. And I just looked at her and I was getting emotional because he he obviously he always looked, you know, older, more taller than me, obviously, like I'm five feet. He's like a legit tall person, but he just looked like such a grown man. And it just took me aback because I was there when he was 16, you know, when people were being mean to him. So he's just come such a long way and he deserves it. Do you feel like watching Giannis and LaMelo and to a, a lesser extent, I got to ask you about Pat Beverly before yeah. we go, but did, did, they, did, did they feel like your little brothers? It, you know, it felt like um, not little brothers. It, I feel emotional when I watch them because I know how hard it was. I think it's this connection. Like I can't watch them without thinking about certain things that I learned along the way. And I think about that with all my players. Like I think feature writing is so beautiful because you get to learn more about a person on a personal level and you will never, even if they have a bad game or something goes wrong, you don't really condemn them in the way that the average person might, because you understand what they've, what it took to get here. There's just a compassion. I guess what I'm trying to say, there's a compassion and empathy that I have towards these guys. Well, speaking of compassion and empathy, Pat Beverly's been <laughs> even him. Yeah, Pat, Pat, I, you 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 did an amazing feature on him. Uh, I happen to love the guy. I if I would if I was his dad, I would say, hey, tone it down a little right, right now. <laughs> but I mean, what makes Pat? What Pat came out? If you're you know if you're listening to this podcast, he he, he was quite honest in his opinion of CP3 and other things, and it's kind of how Pat's always lived his life. He's always I think he's got. He'll always have a lifelong chip on his shoulder. Mm -hmm. But what when you see Pat this this past, you know, recently on TV and saying the unfiltered things he says, what do you think about as it relates to the piece you did a while ago? So 
His comments like that don't surprise me because in fact, it's that brash behavior that drew me to him. Because when I saw him around that time, I was like, I wonder if there are softer sides. That's, that was my first thought was like, he's known as being this super loud in your face, whatever ridiculous person. But I wonder if there are softer sides and that is true. Both exist. I don't think he gets to NBA without whatever's in him that made him say that about CP3. I don't condone it. I think it was bad. It was wrong. All those things. But you don't get to the NBA if you're Pat Beverly, if you don't have that, because what people don't understand, his journey was so circuitous, kicked off the college team, had to go to Europe when that wasn't a thing. People have a short memory, like five, six years ago, Americans, besides Brandon Jennings, people like really didn't do that. He has to go to some random place in Ukraine. His mom goes with him. Their electricity is out the first night and they just look at each other and they're like, not the first time we've been in the dark before. So I think, you know, he's had darkness in his life as far as gang violence and death and all those things. But truly, this is a guy that almost became a European journeyman. He gets to the U.S. by really betting on himself and says, I don't want this one million dollar contract in Russia. I'd rather try to find my way on the Houston Rockets. And to his credit, he fought and fought and carved a niche for himself. I think what he says is so extraneous, but I also I love his hustle. And I'm not ashamed to say that because I know where it comes from and seeing how loving he is with his mom. And in that piece, you really see the softer side of him. I just know that he's not everything that everyone thinks he is. There's also a really thoughtful person inside that has known pain and has had to work really, really hard to get to where he is. Yeah, I, I think I told you before with the podcast, we brought him. He, he went to Ukraine, which is in the news now. And it's not, it's right. not a third. It was not even then a third world country, but. Players didn't go to Ukraine from the United States unless they just had to because they'd rather play in France or Spain or Italy. He right. goes to Ukraine, then he turns down big money to stay in Europe, to your point. But what I I did his games at Arkansas, and I got to know him really well at the Euro camp. And every single time he sees me at the summer league, he has a big hug. And my, my man, you know, you, like there's a loyalty factor, almost like a big puppy dog. Yes. And, uh, and as a former coach, Miran, I would take him on my team every freaking day of the week. That's what I'm saying. Like I, you would never have to tell him to go hard. One of my favorite details in the, the piece I did was he will go to a hotel room and randomly hype up the guests. Can you imagine trying to get your treadmill in at 9 PM and Pat Beverly's like, let's go. Like, I would just be like, Oh, Oh my God. Okay. And you know, I would get going. So he's got, he's a little extra sometimes, but I respect the hustle. If, <laughs> if you knew my wife, she'd be calling down to the front desk and going, <laughs> Get us out of here, you know, yeah, get, get us to another floor, you know, so I, I understand. Hey, um, I can't thank you enough for coming on. There's a movie coming out called Rise. It's a Disney movie. Um, but your book, Giannis, The Improbable Rise of an NBA MVP, um, bestseller, New York Times, you are now. What's that feel like? I mean, six or seven years ago, you're scraping not that you were, you know, Orange County registered. I was, I was scraping. Yeah. I mean, what's it like to like be kind of a, I mean, to, I guess to fulfill your dream. That's, that's the best way to put it. I'm really still shocked, to be honest with you. I, I really didn't think any of this was going to happen. We were chatting before. It took a lot to get a literary agent to believe in me. Um, You know, I signed the deal when I was 28, 29, like it was really, 
it was an uphill battle and things didn't always seem like they were going to work out for me. And I really questioned like, would I ever make it in sports writing when I was at the OC register making like $30,000 and I didn't, I relate to Giannis and love his story because of his work ethic. And I feel like I had to use that same sort of grind to work and, you know, follow my passions and my dreams. So now that it's happening, I feel like I'm really finally starting to take it in. I think in the moment you're so, I don't know, it was, it was such a rush when it came out and I was doing all this stuff at one time and I wasn't really processing what was happening. And now that it's been some time, I'm like, I just feel lucky to do what I'm passionate about. And for me, I want to write 10 books. So this has really helped me get into those rooms of like, here's my second book idea. Like it just, it put me into rooms that I dreamed about. Yeah. Well, there's going to be a second and a third and a fourth book. There's no question. Hopefully one of those will be Luca. Well, I'll talk to Bill Duffy for you. Can you please? Yeah, I will. And is there anybody, before I let you go, is there anybody else that either, if you can't say like, if you got something in the works, you can't tell me, don't tell me, but other than someone that you don't have in the works yet, is there somebody you say, I'm going to write a book about that person someday? Absolutely. I'm oh, like, okay. now that I did it once, because the first time I was like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Like, let's yeah. figure this out. I I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you somebody I think you're going to write about before too long. And that's Diana Tarazi. Okay. Diana is my, okay. I ruined, you see, I have curly hair. Yeah. I like ruined it yeah. as a child by putting so much gel to get yeah. the Diana bun correct when I was growing up because she was my idol. And yeah. It's, I pitched it to her agent, like, I would say like two months ago, just haven't yeah. really heard anything. And so, you know, she doesn't do much. So please keep your manifestations for that as well, because that I, I can't even tell you, she be amazing. so much to me. Yeah. yeah you know, I, and, and you know, she'd be amazing because she has such, you know, I, I, I try to really embrace women's basketball, college basketball, WNBA, because I love the sport and I love all my women friends who are coaching and former players, et cetera. And when I think of Diana and Sue Bird, I think they are transformational figures in our sport, you know, for many, many reasons. And so if I see Diana or Sue, I think there's a book there somewhere, but you'll tell me offline what else you're working on. Um, uh, Mirren Fader is our guest. Giannis, the improbable rise of an NBA MVP is a, you got to read it. It's an amazing story. It's and I, I you know what? You've already said this, but because you said that you got elementary school teachers that are, you know, is there a could you do a children's version like a, you know, like kindergarten through fourth grade type version of the family? It's a natural. You know, I was thinking about this because I I was at the Arizona um, Festival of Books a couple months ago, and these parents came up in line and was like, "Have you considered being a children's book author?" And I, I never thought of it. And I, looking back, I'm like, you know, I did get into loving books because I read basketball books. Like that was how I learned a love for literacy was actually through sports books. So it's definitely, I don't have any, you know, concrete plans, but that's definitely turning in my mind. I don't know about Giannis, but just in general, like that would be so cool for me if I could become a children's author and sort of help kids start, you know, learning how to read because they love basketball too. Like that's, I really yeah. want to do that. And, and uh, role models like Giannis uh, right. himself. So listen, we've, we've discovered two things we have in common. The love, I love, I love basketball. I have been reading basketball books since I was a kid, which is a long time, by the way, 
And, and um, so we have those two things in common, but what we don't have in common is you, I actually wrote for ESPN.com. I did a really good job until they brought the professionals in, uh, <laughs> uh, but I really did do a good job. I took a lot of, it was painstaking to edit myself in the middle of the night when I had to get up at 6 a.m. and somebody needed this article on a deadline, but um, Brutal. you'll give me some tips on that someday. Uh, thank you so much. Um, I've enjoyed your work. I told you that and continued success. Thank you. Oh, this was just the best. This was so fun. Well, that was fascinating. And uh, many thanks to Mirren Fader. She is a rising star in the uh, uh, sports journalism world. You can see her stuff on The Ringer. Great profiles. Um, fabulous stuff. And the book is uh, it's a best New York Times bestseller for a reason. Uh, there's going to be more from Mirren Fader in the future when it comes to books. No question about that. And uh, we thank her again. Um, next week, if you've got any questions, we'll put this out on social media too. Uh, we'll just do a Q&A next week. I am off to LA. Um, I am, I've been invited to the premiere of Hustle in LA, the new Adam Sandler movie, which will debut on Netflix June 10th. There is an international bent to it. Remember the name Bo Cruz. Bo Cruz is about to become a Hollywood legend. And we'll bring you, uh, my experience next week at the, uh, you know, at the premiere, it's my first, that's actually my second movie premiere. I once went to the premiere of He Got Game in New York City, but I was not in the movie, just got invited because I was the coach at St. John's, but. Uh, didn't tell me this. I, well, it's. It's awesome. It's a, that movie came out about 25, 30 it's years a great ago. great movie. Yeah, Ray Allen and uh, uh, Denzel, great movie. Uh, but this one I'm in, even if it's a cameo, Mr. Tyler, you'll see me. It counts. It counts. I do have some speaking lines, which um, hopefully they kept in, but I can't wait to get out there. I'll, we'll fill you in next week. If you got any questions about international basketball, FIBA, the Olympics, the NBA draft, fire away. I'll be in LA. We'll, we'll, we'll record the show from there. And, uh, Mr. Tyler, I'm going to try to get some cool, uh, pictures with uh, Adam Sandler. He's been great to me already when we shot the movie. We'll fill you in some more. And June 24th, I'm in another movie. That's why we had Mirren on. I'll be in the movie Rise, the Disney Plus movie on the life of uh, Big Giannis. So uh, should be fun. Can't wait it's to a, fill you in. It's all happening for you, Fran. It's an exciting time. So if anyone has any questions for Fran, just hit him up on Twitter at Fran Fischel. You can also hit me up on Twitter at Christos Tyler if you want to uh, ask me, uh, you know, ask Fran a question uh, on, on my behalf, whatever. Just send it yeah. to me, send it to Fran, send it to whoever. We'll read it on the show next week. I think that'll be a good opportunity for uh, for fans of the show to just ask you questions about international hoops and certain players that you've seen over the years or experiences in hustle and on rise, all that sort of stuff. It'll be fun. We'll do it. And we got the NBA draft coming up in a few weeks. We'll get a, we'll do a preview show of, uh, on in that regard. Um, and, you know, every week we tell you that some sometime next week, I'm going to bring you to another place in my world of basketball. Well, this time next week, I'll be in L.A. And we will bring you to my place in the world of basketball from L.A. World of Basketball is part of the Sirius XM Podcast Network. The executive producer is Chris Tyler. Sound designed by Robert Moore. A special thanks to Sirius XM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, 
Steve Cullen. Serious XM Podcasts.